0: Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the Double Edge Double Bill. This week, Michael Mann presents The Last of the Black Hats. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 or to seal their fate to the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas and I hate this hacker crap.
1: And I am Thomas Mariani and wherever you are, just know
0: I will find you. That's kind of sinister the way you said it.
1: Right, that's true. I don't have the Daniel D. Lewis locks. That's the key. It's amazing that work as well as it does. Uh, But yes, welcome everybody to uh, the Double-Edged Double Bill, where every week Adam and I uh, discuss a good and a bad feature we pick at the end of the previous episode related to a general topic. And we uh, are doing a topic based around a filmmaker we've wanted to do an episode on for quite a bit, and uh, timing worked out because he is uh, directing something for the first time in quite a while. It's the pilot for the... New show, uh, Tokyo Vice, that'll be on HBO Max. Uh, it is Mr. Michael Mann, who uh, Adam, I believe, is one of, if not your favorite directors out there?
0: Uh, yeah. No, I, I I, I would count him probably as my all-time favorite. I like him, uh, you know, Villain stuff like that. But yeah, probably Michael Mann. Yeah. I mean, the dude's responsible for two of my top three movies of all time. So, yeah, I think it's safe to say he's my favorite.
1: Right. And uh, what do you think makes him distinctive to you? What do you think makes him kind of topple over some of other potential, like, favorite directors of yours? What makes him stand on the tippy top?
0: Not to say that Michael Mann is the only director that does this, but I think Michael Mann just not only has a very distinct visual style that, like, if you're watching a Michael Mann movie, it's clearly a Michael Mann movie, but he also seems to try to, like, push that style into different directions and, and just really going for new techniques as much as he can. I mean, not maybe not as much as like, say, you know, a Soderbergh or something like that, but I just, it's just something about sort of the kinetic but controlled energy of of Michael Mann's films that just really appeals to me.
1: Yeah, it's especially interesting given you mentioned the Soderbergh angle of it. Like, the big thing with him is how once digital filmmaking became a thing, he was a huge advocate and pioneer in terms of just, like, taking that aesthetic that a lot of people said, like, oh, this is junky, this is kind of bad, and he really just embraced that. I think it's because, like, he tends to make movies about um, very sad men who are dealing with a lot of, like, masculine bullshit that they can't get over, and so it feels as if, like, once he got into, like, digital filmmaking with, I think it was around, it wasn't collateral, I think it was Ali was the first one he kind of had some of that for, but then collateral really is where it's like, kicks off fully, where, like, the digital filmmaking, I think he manages to, like, really take that kind of, like, introspection that his characters have, and just really put it literally in their face with the digital craft of it, but even when he was working with film, he still made great movies about the similar subjects.
0: Oh yeah, man! Definitely, like you know, we've talked about it here in one of our very first episodes. But heat, you know, and just how visually, just mind blowing that movie is. It's a lot of close ups, but then these huge panoramic sort of scenery scenes too, scenery shots, scenery scenes. Listen to me, (laughs) but I'll take dumb for eight hundred. No, it's just he knows how he knows where he wants to put the camera at all times uh you know I, I said it was Soderbergh as well and uh, you know I don't mean to keep making that comparison but I think it is a comparison that you know is a just one especially with sort of the embrace of digital and new technology it never feels sort of fly by the seat of his pants it's like he is meticulous in how he wants his film to look and sound and you know, be acted and, and the color and everything. Like I said, he's got such a definable style that uh, it's just, yeah, I'm here for it.
1: Well, it's especially interesting given, like, it wasn't just that the film element of it. We should probably also talk about the fact that he's one of the first people to pull that off even with television where television before, really, like, a Miami Mm -hmm. Vice, had so much more of, like, a staid, familiar tone. Not all, like, I'm I'm not painting a brush of, like, all, like, pre-1985 television, but a lot of it didn't have, like, as much room for, like, an auteur aesthetic. And then Miami Vice, even though I haven't seen, I've seen, like, the pilot of that show, but still, even when you look at that pilot, which isn't even directed by him, at the same time, you see, like, oh, no, so much of, like, his later style, but even just, like later, like, action movies or, uh, like, gradually when we get to, like, the golden era of TV, all owes it to, like, him having, like, a full grasp of it, even, like, with Miami Vice, the TV show, which I also love the fact that, rather than, like, rest on those old laurels and do that when he came back to Miami Vice in 2006, at that point, she's like, nah, I'm over that shit. I'm doing something very different that's gonna alienate everybody.
0: (laughs) Everybody. Absolutely everybody. Everybody. And he's like, you know what? I don't give a shit. And, uh, you know, I, I, my, that movie might be brought up later on. But, yeah, it's just, you know, it, it, if there's one thing you say about Michael Mann, Michael Mann just kind of does what he wants to do.
1: And I love hearing him in, like, interviews and commentaries where he's a straight-up just, like, Chicago, no-bullshit dude. He's like, yeah, whatever the fuck. Mm-mm. Yeah, fuck it, fuck it, doesn't matter. <laughs> just He totally, like, it's like you mentioned, like, he he's one of those two guys who has a real reign on his ability to make movies, which I think is also part of why he just doesn't make that many movies, unfortunately. Like, we're going to be talking about his most recent film that came out in 2015, and there are so many stories about, like, oh, he was going to make, like, The Aviator, and then that didn't end up happening as producer on it, or um, even, like, the Ferrari movie. Like, he is going to apparently make it now, but for years it was in development hell, and then eventually he couldn't get it made because he was going to make it with Christian Bale, and then Christian Bale said, like, no, fuck, I'm going to do that with James Mangold and Matt Damon instead. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I think you're you're absolutely right, though. He he's just has such a, I'm going to do it my way and how I want to do it. And, and especially in nowadays, sort of, you know, the way box offices have been and things like that, it's probably very, very hard for him to get, you know, even approval to go off and make something.
1: Which is ironic given, say, a Christopher Nolan is able to do that when Christopher Nolan owes his entire career to Heat specifically.
0: Oh, yeah, oh. 100%, uh, especially in Christopher Nolan's, you know, highest grossing movie or whatever, The Dark Knight. I mean, it's very, very heat. It's
1: heat with, like, Batman's in the middle of it. Batman is playing, like, that Pacino right. exactly. basically.
0: Because she's got a great ass.
1: <laughs> <laughs> do you want me to come home and talk to you about, oh, hey, honey, I just dealt with the Joker today. Is that what you want
0: me to do? You could get shot walking your doggy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, well, we're not talking about Heat today, Adam. We're talking about two uh, very different films uh, from Michael Mann. Uh, we are talking about uh, the two films we picked at the end of the last episode, where you have the two good picks. We ended up with Last of the Mohicans. And then uh, we, I ended up with the two bad picks. And I ended up with Black Hat. So, again, two uh-huh. of the ones that most people don't at least associate with Mann as much, even like with the Last of the Mohicans, is very unlike most of his other films, as we'll uh, jump into right now with our first film, Alas, the, the Mohicans. As a new land was being carved, one man, defiantly courageous, stood his ground.
0: I called all our colonial scouts What in the militia. I ain't your skill.
1: we sure ain't no damn militia. One
0: woman, fiercely independent, followed her spirit. My father warned me about people like you. He said, do not try to understand them. Do not try to make them understand you. Thank you so much.
1: They shared an adventure that took them from the edge of the wilderness.
0: He saved us. We were alive only because of him. Are those the actions of a criminal?
1: ...and into each other's hearts.
0: Why didn't you leave when you had the chance?
1: Because what I'm interested in is right here. Academy Award winner Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeline Stowe, The Last of the Mohicans. So, Last of the Mohicans came out in 1992, uh, from, you know, uh, directed by Michael Mann, of course, but it was co-written by him and Christopher Crow, based on both the novel by James Fenimore Cooper, and specifically the 1936 adaptation, because there have been several adaptations of that book. But the 1936 one was apparently a big inspiration for Michael Mann getting into film. um, And I actually watched that movie, as like a bit of a double feature with this one. And there's interesting comparisons to make. But Adam, this was your choice. And uh, you alluded to, at least, that uh, Heat was one of your favorites of all time. Yeah, there was... Heat
0: is my all-time favorite, for sure. Yeah, yeah.
1: Right. But you said there was also a second favorite. And if I'm not mistaken, is Last Mohicans that one?
0: Yep. It definitely, definitely is. Uh, Last Mohicans, there's several reasons why. It is a movie that not only I bonded sort of with my dad and my brother over... Because um, my dad really enjoyed it, my brother loved it, so I was like kind of caught up in their excitement. So I, I enjoyed it, uh, of course. But it's just as I've gotten older and rewatched it, and rewatched it, and rewatched it. There's just so much in this movie to me that it's ins- just some of the choices are mind-boggling, perplexing that they work as well as they do. For instance, the score with all sort of the bagpipes and things like that—like it has no place here. Yet it, it just, I, I love the score. The score of this movie is one of the main reasons why I love it so much. It's such an enthralling, beautiful score, but the cinematography, the just some of the shots in this movie are some of my favorite shots in film history. Uh, I mean, it, it, you know, not to go shot by shot, but the, one of my favorite scenes is the crossing of the bridge where it's dual reflected in the water. And it's just looks like a complete mirror image because the water is so crisp and clear. Um, I, Daniel Day Lewis is the first thing I saw him in, and I'm like, "Who the fuck is this guy?" Like, and he he's just he's incredible in it. Uh, just the history of you know, he, as accurate as it may be, which I'm, I'm guessing you know there's a lot of parts that aren't. But it was the first thing that got me sort of really interested in in Native American culture, and you know the French and Indian Wars and the sort of militia warfare of this time and it just frontier life. It, it just opened up a world to me that I had never really had any interest in, but because of this movie, it's become some of my favorite stuff and it is solely based on this movie.
1: This is going to be a very interesting show. Um, well, uh, my relationship with this movie, I remember at least somewhat seeing it in high school. And by somewhat, I mean, I watched maybe the first 20 minutes and fell asleep in the middle of class because it was near the end of uh, the term and everything, so okay. I didn't really... You jerk. Well, right, and then I gave it another chance, you know, when I was older, um, and it when I was going through, like, Michael Mann's movies, I watched and I'm like, it still isn't quite clicking with me, and I'm not sure why, and then I kind of realized it here, especially, like I mentioned, I watched the 1936 movie, which, you know, a 1936 movie depicting, like, a lot of indigenous folks is uh, probably not the most sensitive, you know, but weirdly... It is so similar to this movie. Like, even huge changes, like, one, making Hawkeye, like, a younger guy, um, is was implemented into that, in, from what I've heard, instead of the novel, he's, like, a much older man. Um, in the 1936 movie, he's more of, like, this uh, male lead type, which, for the record, is really weird, and, like, Randolph Scott plays him, and he's literally in, like, Davy Crockett cosplay. <laughs> It's very bizarre that he's just like, oh, with all these, like, you know, indigenous folks, and he's just like Davy Crockett in the middle, and them like, yes, I was raised by the Mohicans, like, sure, sure, buddy. Yeah, but even, like, certain things like the whole thing with Alice, when she, like, falls over the cliff, it's, like, almost shot for shot similar to this movie, obviously with, like, 36-era cinematography, but, like, that element... Or even just, like, changing sort of the relationship that he has um, with, like, Russell Means' character, who in the novel apparently is his brother, versus here he's the, the adopted dad kind of thing. Um, that was implemented in the 36 movie. But what, what was so fascinating, like, going to this one, and, like, what really kind of clicked for me is that, like, I've never been a huge fan of sort of these depictions of, like, the sort of, like, uh, you know, colonialism era coming in to America – Kind of thing, because it always feels kind of like whitewash. I and mean, mainly like, this is not nearly as bad as, say, like a Dances with Wolves in that regard, because at least like, OK, he's an adopted like white man who is like raised amongst these, you know, the actual people, the Mohicans in this case. Uh, but at the same time, there's just this weird false, especially just considering like the, the title of this story is a lie. Like, we still have, like, descendants of the Mohicans still around to this day. They were just, like, um, pushed off their homes and, like, into reservations. And it just sort of perpetuates the same kind of thing that I'm just not really a fan of with these kind of stories of just, like, oh, this was a past problem. This was, like, an ancient thing. Like, oh, well, I guess, like, every, like, all this horrible stuff happened and it's tragic. And this movie acknowledges that in a way that, say, a dance with wolves doesn't do as well. Uh, but at the same time, it's still is, like, just kind of part of, like, that kind of like storytelling trope i've never been a huge fan of or just like well it's all in the past it's all over and we can you know keep proceeding with like what we learned from these people me white daniel day lewis and madeline stowe we can continue to produce white children that just kind of like you know take these learnings and these lessons and uh put all of that aside to the
0: past um i mean I get what you're saying. It's made pretty clear, at least to me, that his father, Chinjag Cook, is the last of the Mohicans, at least in their their group. Um, he even says, you know, that he is the last one. But you're saying then Hawkeye and you know Korra go off and have children and teach them all these lessons and stuff. That's not in the text or in the film at all. Like the, at all. Like they may end up together, but there is no sort of And this is how it was for us and blah, blah, blah. That's, you know, yeah, this movie might take place in the past, but it's very present in the context of the movie. I do think we are, of course, we are watching different sorts of cultures clash and things like that in the movie, of course. Um, But I I just never, I mean, we just look at it a different way. I I never took it as, and these are the lessons we learned. Like, I never, I never took that.
1: Well, maybe I phrased it slightly inaccurately. Like, what I'm just saying is the fact that, like, it still is presenting this problem as, like, very much like an of-the-past era. Like, this is what happened at this particular point, and we're—it's like a tragedy that this happened, but at the same time, we can kind of move on from it. It just kind of perpetuates that kind of—
0: Couldn't you say that about any movie that takes place in the past? I mean, honestly. but
1: okay, but 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 well, hold on. There, but this is very specifically about like indigenous cultures and stuff like that. Which, by the way, we're all we're both talking about this. We're both white guys. We apologize if we screw up talking about any of us, either of us, because we could usually <clears throat> be like fucking up
0: talking about any of these things. And, well, I but, mean, to be fair, we're going by we're going by the movie, talking about what happens in the movie. So if we do offend anybody, it's we're watching. It's we're literally all of our points are coming from the film.
1: Right. Yeah. I think it probably doesn't help for me that like. I don't feel like the the two um, sort of part the people in his adopted family with like Russell Means or Eric Shewig as Uncas, I don't mm-hmm. feel like either of them really have much character to them. They are very much treated as equals, at least with Dandy Lewis, that's for sure. Like especially earlier on when they're doing a lot of the hunting and stuff like that. But they're not really ultimately very developed characters as even compared to like a Daniel day Lewis, which like in any case, like I still don't find Hawkeye that compelling as a main lead, but regardless, he still has like so much more of the overt like story about like, Oh, I'm going to like help my, you know, my, my people, basically the remains of my people, my family. But at the same time, the family also, I don't feel like they have much to do in the story. The most developed person who is of like actual indigenous descent is West Studi who I think is very good in the movie. I think very, uh, a a solid villain for everybody to kind of bounce off of. But at the same time, he is still like this, the most interesting complex character of that indigenous descent is a villain who still is ultimately kind of depicted in ways that denote certain stereotypes about indigenous people. That still, it just makes me feel like I think Michael Mann took an older story that has a lot of problematic elements to it and made probably the best version you could considering the era, um, but ultimately it still has like some of those traces. That still doesn't make it that interesting to me. It never really has.
0: Right. No, I mean, I get it. Um, to me, th- this movie, I-, I get what you're saying, and I do think, like, Dance with Wolves is 100% uh, more guilty of it is, um, as far as the white savior sort of thing and all that i mean i i i'm trying to be delicate here um mm-hmm. i don't think that the daniel day lewis character the hawkeye character is sort of the prototypical white savior character i do agree that chingesh and Uncas don't have a lot to do in the movie but it's not it, it's hmm.
1: it's not their story is it whose story is it it's the white guy who <laughs> knows all this stuff and can do it just as well as they can, apparently.
0: Right. But it's also, I mean, we're going on a story based off an old book. I mean, if you really want to go to it, then you go to the book as the problem, which you did. And I understand that. And I do, like I said, I don't disagree with you. I mean, it's your opinion. It, you know, that's 100% fine. And yes, Shinja Cook and Unka's don't have much to do. But I mean, ultimately, it is Shinja Cook who takes out the villain and ultimately it is Shinji Koku who has the final speech in the movie and ultimately is there sort of <clears> hmm <throat> I do get what you're saying uh I mean I, I can't disagree with you on any of it in particular I don't see it the same way but I mm-hmm. guess that's sort of the beauty of, beauty of movies um if we go in comparison to any of the other type of movies like this, which there are a lot, there are a lot of these sort of frontier, you know, sort of films. um, I think this one's probably the most delicately handled out of all of those. Um, This one to me feels like that. They, they definitely are trying to tell a genuine story and not just have it be. Wasn't it crazy back then? Like it just, this feels like it's, I mean, basically, we know what it is. It's a love story. It's a romance movie set against the backdrop of the sort of the French Indian colonial wars. I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, I this movie will always hold in my top three. It's just one of those movies for me. Um, I and I be hard pressed to find as many sort of elements in this movie still to this day even being if i was trying to be as um, subjective as possible which I, i try to do watching any movie whether or not it holds you know a spot in my top three or not um i'm still hard pressed to find really as many issues with this i think obviously as you do or as i would watching you know like a dance with wolves or any of those type of films I I, I think the cinematography is just breathtaking. I think the score is breathtaking. I think the acting is just incredible. I think the battle scenes are amazingly choreographed. I think when it needs to be brutal, it's brutal. When it needs to be, uh, you know, romantic and swelling, it it, it achieves that as well.
1: I I agree with you that this is not nearly as bad as The Dances with the Wolves, which I recently actually just watched. um, Just as like, well, that's the best picture one I haven't seen before. Um, And that movie also is very well shot, uh, but is very much more sure. about like a guy invading that culture and then being like, "Oh, hey, I'm a buddy of yours right now, right?" And then we can all be friends, as opposed to yeah, Hawkeye is explicitly written at least as like an adopted, you know, person into the Mohicans, like he's adopted by uh, the Russell Means character, and they very much at least have respect for there. Where I don't think anybody is. Necessarily depicted in a horrific light as many other depictions of indigenous people have done previously. Because, like, this was one of those movies, like, in the wake of a Dances with Wolves, where uh-huh. they didn't actually put anybody in brown face, and everyone was like, oh my god, we can do that in Hollywood. Um, so, this movie continues that and at least has a couple of like interesting like concepts with it. Like, my favorite scene in the whole movie is the bit where um, they all go to the Huron tribe. And they um, have the conversation where it's all different languages. Um, and you have, like, one person translating one person another, like, trying to explain how this is going and all this other stuff. I love that element of it. I, I find that fascinating where it's like, oh, okay, these people are trying to communicate while one person can, like, speak French, one person can speak, like, an indigenous language, and one person can speak English, and it's going back and forth. I, I like aspects like that as opposed to, like, with, you know... Regardless of, like, any of the indigenous stuff, I think another big problem is just I don't find Hawkeye and his relationship with the the Madeline Stowe character to be that engaging. I think Madeline Stowe and Daniel D. Lewis are two very attractive people, but it's a very sort of, like, old-school Hollywood romance that I think really can be hit or miss with me, and I think in this case it kind of misses. I don't really have much engagement in their relationship, ultimately. Uh, I just feel like they do kind of like see each other and like, Oh, we have similar hair and we both look pretty. (laughs)
0: Let's fuck. (laughs) Like that's basically, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, let's, let's put it this way. If you can't get on board with that, then the movie's not gonna, not gonna stack up. I mean, it is such a huge part of the story. See, I find it very engaging. Uh, and I've always thought it's a great romance, but I mean, again, yeah, if you can't, (laughs) if you're watching it and like, I don't believe this then you're gonna have a problem.
1: Well, well, I'm curious, what makes you b- believe in that relationship? What, what what, elements, like, really make you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm really fully invested in the two of them getting together?
0: Because they feel like, you know, just both people out of... It's almost like they both find... They find each other from being completely, you know, out of their own elements. And out of, like, he he's so used to just being, you know on his own with his adopted family and sort of living on the land and stuff. And then once he gets involved with her, then he finds himself become more of a protector of her and stuff. And she's been raised, you know, in wealth and in sort of properness and, you know, with Duncan and all that stuff. And then she's completely out of realm alone as well, because of obviously the war and things like that. And they just sort of find each other in the middle. And it just, it just works for me. It's like him finding part of his lineage and her finding a part that she never knew she had, strength she never had. And it just, it's ultimately worked for me. And plus, like you said, it doesn't hurt that they're both incredibly good looking people. Right. Yeah, I don't know if it is because I saw this when I was young and, you know, sort of pre-pubescent or whatever and whole hormones going and it's like oh my god look at these two great looking people oh but it's just it's always been one that's endeared itself to me now do i think it's one of the greatest movie romances of all time no but i think it really works in this movie and this story
1: Yeah, I I mean, I I feel like, you know, with with the two of them, I I get some of the stuff you're saying, it's clearly what the movie's going for, it's just like, oh, we're at these two sort of, like, disparate points from two very different walks of, like, you know, me living in the land, and you, like, being this woman who's, like, coming in with this colonial father, like, I, I respect elements of that, like, particularly, I like the fact that she is the one who really strives to be like, no, we need to get him, like, from being in jail basically when he ends up getting captured because he's about to try and get people out. And it's like, oh, they're trying to stow away. And her father is very brutally like, no, he should be treated like everybody else. He's going to be hung and destroyed. Like the movie, at the same time I'm saying like all this other stuff about like how it treats some of these indigenous people, it's very still anti-colonialist in a way that, like I said, a lot of these movies fucking weren't around this point, with, like, particularly, I I like how they use a lot of, like, the English and the French side of things as, like, oh, we're totally manipulating, like, different tribes and basically destroying each other, which feels probably more accurate to what History would have been, at least on a basic level, just like, oh, white people come in and they either slaughter directly or they manipulate from the sides to make sure people get slaughtered. Like the bit where West Judy's talking about, like, the actual origin of, like, why he hates the gray hair, as he's talking about, and the French guy's like, oh, well, I don't know, I mean, I told them we wouldn't attack, it's our ceasefire, but if a bunch of Huron attacked, I don't know, I, I wouldn't know it, <laughs> wink, wink, wink. Like, th- those elements, I think, are what make this a bit more interesting than, like I said, the average one of those, which w- where I would, like, agree even with my problems with the movie, that this one at least stacks up a bit better than, like, the average movie about, like, colonialism and destroying indigenous people, is that it's a movie very still at the same time saying, like, oh, no, white people are still mostly
0: pretty shitty. Oh, I mean, yeah, definitely. No, it's very anti-colonialism. Duncan's the only one that, like, out of all of them, are like, oh, he redeems himself. And he's a fucking bastard kind of the whole movie. Uh, yeah, everyone else, like, these people are terrible. Uh, but that scene specifically, and you brought it up with um, Magua and the French cat captain and they're talking and he's explaining to him you know why he hates colonel monroe so much And all it's it's just that's an incredible scene that that scene right there to me is why west studie's magua is one of the great movie villains because it gives him more to, than just being this crazed sort of you know psychopath who's brutally trying to kill these people like he has a lot of weight pathos to him and you can the anger is real and there's a reason for it And it's just, I think that's one of the more important scenes of the movie because of that. If not, he would just be like the old school Hollywood depiction of, you know, sort of indigenous villain, indigenous person. And they really give him weight.
1: Right. Yeah. I just wish we maybe gave some of that depth to any other Native American character, particularly like the Uncas Alice thing, I'm gonna this is bizarre. It's a better love story between those two in like the older movie, where which this is based on, the nineteen thirty six movie, where they actually have like scenes of connection together. In a thirty six movie they're able to do that. As opposed to this movie they're just like, oh you nearly fell off the waterfall. And then Uncas gets killed and then she actually leaps off the waterfall. That's about the extent of their characters, honestly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with that part. I don't disagree with that at all. I was always kind of perplexed by that, even as a younger man, and still kind of am like, well, they really fell for each other super fast.
1: Yeah, and I mean, at the same time, there still is, like, some interesting stuff. Like, obviously, like, Michael Mann, the way that he shoots this is interesting, especially going back to after so much of his digital work, when you go back to this, with stuff like, my favorite scene in this is the canoe chase, where... Like, everyone's, like, right on top of each other, and it looks, like, so immaculate, but you could tell at the same time. I'm sure Michael Mann's shooting this, like, fuck, I hate these big cameras. Why can't I get closer than I already am? I wish I had, like, a digital camera so I could see Daniel Lewis's fucking pores in my face. But at the same time, he shoots it, like, so well where it's just, like, you're in the middle of, like, all of this, despite the fact that you're dealing with, like, 1992-era, film cameras.
0: Oh, yeah, 100%, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a great scene. Well, that's what I was saying earlier. The battle scenes are great. Uh, Even the scene where, you know, the first attack, the sort of the British, and it's, you know, the British doing all these fighting regiments. Well, don't give me – you have to admit while watching this, you're like, oh, my God, this is why you guys got slaughtered. The, you know, nail, draw, what? Like, just that horrible – procedure, you're like, you get frustrated watching like, you fucking idiots. But that scene where they're firing in the woods and then it would show them hide behind the trees because they're announcing when they're going to fire.
1: Yeah, or even like the actual combat with like Daniel Day-Lewis. It's so weird knowing Daniel lewis so much more as like, oh, he's like, the there'll be blood guy or like Phantom Thread, this like very classically trained a British actor, and in this movie, he's just going full force as, like, an action hero. It's, it's weird how he manages to give this gravitas to, like I mentioned, Hawkeye who I don't find to be that depthful a character, but it still just is interesting seeing Daniel Day-Lewis just go full hog with, like, particularly anytime he uses the, I, I'm not sure what the weapon is called, but, like, the one that's shaped like a rifle that everybody hold that, that him and, like, Russell Means everybody else, like, holds to, like, murder people with, basically just smash them with like, a yeah. like, blade. I, I don't know what him. it's
0: called, but it's badass.
1: Yeah. Like, it, it just even, like, the cuts, the way it's edited, does such a phenomenal job of, like, each, like, hit matches with a cut in a way that, like, really tells you, like, how it's, like, messy and forceful and brutal. Um, and by the way, it's called a gunstock club. Ah.
0: Yes. That's a hell of a weapon. Yes. And another one of my favorite scenes, too, is when they're sort of doing their retreat march through that giant, open, you know, green field, and it's surrounded on both sides by trees, and then all of a sudden, just poof, poof, random things of smoke start coming out of the woods, and then they just get rushed. It's so brutal, and what a great scene.
1: Yeah, and even stuff like, as much as not as huge on like, the romance element of it, I love the way that Michael Mann shoots like the embraces between Daniel Day-Lewis and Madeline Stowe, particularly like, when they're underneath the waterfall, and you see the waterfall behind them, or even... like This is a recurring thing in his movies, where like the sex scenes aren't graphic, but it's a lot of people huffing and puffing at each other even madeline stowe in this movie has that where she's just Mm -hmm. like kind of like breathing heavily basically and daniel lewis is kind of there it just shows that it's like oh it's not like extremely graphic but it has a lot of that sexual tension at the same time
0: oh yeah 100 percent. like you know even duncan says it because you're infatuated with him like yeah yeah they feel it for each other it is just a lot of longing looks and sort of you know, circling around each other and stuff like that. It almost feels like two, um, like, cats sort of <laughs> escorting each other. Like it, it, And then, plus, you know, you might not be into their romance and stuff, but even during that battle scheme I was talking about, just the fact that he goes through all of those guys to get to her. And, I mean, mm-hmm. he expertly is dispatching them. It's pretty awesome. Or even the way, that
1: like, he delivers, obviously, the line that referenced earlier, just like, I will find you and all this other stuff. It's re- extremely well delivered by D. Lewis, who obviously was, like, Shocker is like very method about this film. So he was just like, Yeah, I'm gonna live in the fucking woods and live mm. off the land basically, <laughs> as, and eventually just come out whenever we we're ready to film, obsessively. And in, like, despite how like some of that method acting stuff can be a bit ridiculous at times, it admittedly works for him because, as much as I'm not a huge fan of Hawkeye, the character, I think his performance. Is phenomenal, it still just like displays so much like confidence and honesty. It, like I said, even though this is, character is very much like a typical Hollywood action hero, D Lewis provides it with so much more gravitas than it really deserves.
0: Well, yeah, he's Daniel D Lewis, baby. That's why he's you know, multiple Academy Award winning crazed shoe cobbler. Daniel D Lewis,
1: if only he'd been like a more traditional Hollywood action film, just like, no, I want to study to become John Matrix in Commando, <laughs> I yes. must study. Oh, God. Le- <laughs>
0: He's out there carrying giant trees on his shoulder and stuff. <laughs>
1: For months. <laughs>
0: For... He, he, he ate ice cream with Alyssa uh, Mulatto. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: do you remember when I said kill you yeah. last?
0: I lied. Right. <laughs> Chill <laughs> out. <laughs> <laughs> you need to let it, You need to let off some steam, Benna. <laughs> it's so fucking stupid.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Um, well, we do have another film to talk about, so let's go yeah. ahead and go into... Our final thoughts here on it. Um, I'll start off because I'll give you the last word, Adam, given you're a big fan. Sure, of I'll sure. give you the last word. Um, I've, it sounds like I'm extremely negative on the movie. I'm not necessarily. This is not like the worst Michael Mann movie by any stretch. And I still, like I mentioned, despite I, my several issues with sort of like how this kind of fits into the canon of how indigenous people have necessarily been portrayed. I would still say it's upper echelon of that because it does have at least respect for the actual like indigenous actors who are there and has like some authenticity in terms of like, apparently they used actual, um, you know, indigenous languages and stuff like that for when they're communicating. Um, And they used actual, you know, indigenous actors, which was like I said, not as common, unfortunately at this time, they, you know, this is not too long after they did those fucking ads with a Sicilian dude crying over litter. Bullshit like that. Um, But at the same time, I still think it kind of feels like it's updated in terms of like, oh, we're using actual indigenous actors and we're having some authenticity to it. But we're still not necessarily giving, you know, much voice to like multiple different indigenous perspectives. We're still kind of feeding into like the good and bad indigenous person kind of perspective on things. that still was like a common thing in Hollywood even before that and you're right that like this is based on older source material uh, whether it be the 36 movie or the even older novel uh, but at the same time I don't feel like sadly we've really progressed that much beyond this movie in terms of some of those depictions where we'll have authentic elements like an actual like West Studi who still makes movies and stuff like that and is still cast thankfully but we still just haven't really moved that far beyond what well, was with Last of the Mohicans and it just feels, I don't know. It, it feels like this is upper echelon of those kind of like movies where we have like a white protagonist and have indigenous people off to the side as side characters. Um, but that's not necessarily a high hill to jump over. So it still is not nearly my favorite, despite some really great technical elements and Andy Lewis being very good. Never been a huge fan of this one. But please, final thoughts, Adam, on Last of the Mohicans.
0: Uh, like I said before, you know this just it's it's burned its way into the scroll of my top three films and it, it'll probably always be there um it, it's just I got so much fond memories just from watching this movie with family members and you know this is one of the ones where i I, I gotta be honest this might be one of the first movies where I really noticed the difference between an expert uh, cinematography and film and you know, just a normal action movie. Like the, this, the shots of this movie are so beautiful. And it's just, like I said, the swelling score and Daniel Day-Lewis, the first time I saw him and just the fascination it, it made me have with history and sort of the early Americas and, and what it was and, and things like that. I just, for me, it, it's one of the better... If, well, no, obviously, if it's one of my favorite movies. To me, it's probably the best uh, depiction of this time period without being offensive. Um, I, I think it's, yeah, they might not give certain characters stuff to do, but they never treat any of the indigenous people or anything like that in a real horrible light. It's like, yeah, there's some bad, you know, people in this movie and and Magua is a villain and stuff, but there is reasoning behind it all. It's not just, he's crazy. It's, it's just to me, it's, it's a perfect movie, even with some of the faults, like I do agree, particularly with the uh, Uncas and Alice stuff. Uh, It is, you know, rushed a little bit, but it's doesn't distract from my love and appreciation of the film at all, even to this day. And plus it's unlike anything Michael Mann has done before or since, and for him to do that well with it uh, is just, again, speaking to the caliber of Michael Mann as a director. So um, if you're a Michael Mann fan or you just are fascinated by directors who just kind of did a one-off piece that's unlike anything they've done, then there you go. You can't go wrong with this one.
1: But let's do a left turn into a completely different kind of film here with Black Hat.
0: Some hacker is hitting our financial markets. Four major banks, and that's just what we know about? If we want clues to the hacker's identity, we need a man named Hathaway. What do we know about this guy? He's a convicted hacker serving 15 years. MIT, genius coder. I want you to commute my sentence for identification and the apprehension of the guy you're after. Those are the terms. Is he political? terrorist attack any declaration the guy we're working with will drop the big hammer and not think twice about it he's on the move again chicago now china this is only the beginning he's still writing War four, four.
1: So, uh, Black Hat came out on January 16th, 2015. Um, And like I said, it's Michael Mann's most recent film. Um, And it's interesting in terms of... um, It's probably the movie that got him in a bit of, like, director jail in terms of uh, this movie bombed so, so hard (laughs) when it came out on January 16th, 2015. It cost $70 million, and uh, it ended up making... Um, over at least the whole perspective, like $19 million, which is very bad already. But on its opening weekend, it opened number 11 with $1.7 million, which is one of the worst debuts for a movie that opened over 2,500 locations. So it was withdrawn after like two weeks. Big, massive bomb. Horrible bomb uh, that really hurt him. Um, And at the time, it was not critically uh well liked uh, it was very much dismissed as um, a bad hacker movie because it's basically about uh chris hemsworth as like a buff hacker dude uh which it was kind of dismisses at the time and uh later on when um by the end of the year despite that uh there were still a lot of people praising it putting it on top 10 lists and everything else it's fascinating because michael mann has sort of like that film twitter following i guess that gets a lot of people immersed in saying like oh he can do no wrong necessarily but I'd seen this movie before I mainly picked it as a bad movie because of some of like the reception that had particularly at the time. And uh, Adam, you hadn't seen it before. So uh, what were your initial thoughts on Black Hat?
0: I've never been a fan of sort of hacker type movies. I, it's other than hackers, just because how is that a movie? Um, Cause that's nothing to do with real hacking, but like swordfish or this or, or things like that. I never really got into those type of movies. And uh, Yeah, Uh, it starts off with them going through the computer and all through the circuitry and the wires almost like it's a highway scene and they do that a lot. And uh, yeah, that happens a couple more times. And uh, to be 100% honest, I found this movie to be incredibly boring. I was not invested at all, and it's not even just because, like I said, it's a hacker movie. It's just so ridiculous. It's 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 just ridiculous. Who? So Nick Hathaway was an MIT sort of computer genius who wrote this code with his friend, who then went off to be like sort of cybersecurity specialist for the Chinese government. And well, okay, fine why does he know how to fight so well? And why does he know he's like a super detective genius? And like, I, it's just, it's too much. Like they try to do too many different things in this movie with one character. And I just got sort of, I, I didn't care ultimately about the lead at all, like at all. And then there's other characters in the movie that are just wasted this might be one of the biggest examples I can think of in a while of just a completely wasted Viola Davis. It's just, it's just too, I I don't want to say too far fetched because there's, you know, that's sort of the point of the movie. It's just, it's trying so hard to be a James Bond movie. Like if I had to pick a movie that came out since then that I would just in sort of, messiness and tone throw this with it'd be almost like a tenant for me like this is just it's just boring great locations good looking people good wardrobe shot pretty well uh but that's about all it has going for it it's all face value
1: this will continue to be a very interesting show um I dig Black Hat. Uh, I dig it even more than the last time I saw it. I don't love it. I would still not say it's like upper echelon Michael Mann necessarily, but I think James Bond isn't quite the accurate comparison to me as much as it's Michael Mann trying to make hacking up in the same echelon with, like, safe cracking or, like, bank robbers like he's done previously in these other movies. And that's why I find it so fascinating to me is that he realizes, like, okay, in a modern world where, like, I've already covered, say, with, like, the previous one we did Public Enemies was, like, old school bank robbers and how they become obsolete. Or even in like a Miami Vice, he's dealing with a lot with like surveillance and people being monitored all the time. Black Hat's kind of like a culminating factor between those two things, his two previous movies, and becomes this movie that's so about like, oh, hey, um, you can do anything with a fucking computer. I don't know if this is obviously accurate to any degree um, about like actual hacking, but Michael Mann basically takes like with the Nick Hathaway character, he's like, okay, you see that code there? Yeah, it's a bit out of whack, let me see if I can do something with that. And then he does it and like, that causes like a nuclear explosion to happen with like the other hackers that we don't see. Like you're forgetting the fact that like, all that lead up at the beginning, with like the going through the various different like circuitries and stuff like that, is lead up to a fucking nuclear plant in China, like exploding, (laughs) having a massive explosion. But when you're like too focused on maybe like, oh, they're like tick clacking away on a fucking computer keyboard, then all of a sudden, oh, there's a massive shootout. Oh, and then there's, like, a huge confrontation scene at the end where fucking Chris Hemsworth is covered in magazines and proceeds to stab a man multiple times with a screwdriver. This movie's nuts. This movie's weird. This movie is far more interesting to me than even, like, a Tenet that's dealing with, like, time travel and all this other bullshit. This movie's fucking crazy in a way that I find pretty entertaining throughout.
0: Yeah, I didn't forget that it led to a massive explosion. I just don't give a shit. Um, The thing is, yeah, there's a cool shootout or yeah the final scene or whatever but it's like an hour then you get something and then it's just them going from country to country chasing a guy and, and, and it's not the and there isn't a lot of them setting I mean there is a lot of them sitting on computers doing stuff but that, that, the, that part didn't bother me I and mean, that's the point of the movie I guess it's just everything that they try to give you that could be super exciting or whatever it's just it, it's yeah. by the time you get to it I don't care Like, I just don't care. I do like the final, like, the the stabbings are fucking hardcore. Like, in the final, the final scene. Like, Chris Hemsworth stabs the shit out of two dudes. But then it's like, I didn't give a shit about the romance in this one. Talk about a romance that I didn't fucking connect with. That would be this one. I did not care at all. Like, at all. I was more interested in his friendship with the guy who's works for the Chinese government than I was in his relationship with that guy's sister. I thought there could have been a really cool dynamic between the two of them, you know, where he went to jail and now he's part of like sort of law enforcement could have had some really cool stuff there. And they kind of just go, nah, just make him, you know, get in a relationship with the sister and then have one scene really quick where they talk about what it can mean. And then that's it. We're done. I think I went in expecting too much out of this because it is a Michael Mann movie because I like Chris Hemsworth so much. And I, I do know a couple people. You're not the only one that I know who's like, Oh man, it's fucking cool. Like you got to see it. Blah, blah, blah. So I kind of went in maybe with a little bit too high of expectations, which, you know, it, it never will ruin a movie for me. I didn't care about any of the characters. Really. There was potential there to for, be cool conflict and stuff that they didn't lean into. They, they decided to just lean into a love angle, a romance angle, and it's now Michael Mann can be guilty of doing that. It's kind of every movie he makes. There's always a romance angle in there with the lead, sort of loner guy. And, I mean, and it's, he and it's rare it.
1: that like the female characters are his most developed in any of his movies.
0: Oh no, never. I mean, kind yeah, of basically right. never. Right. I mean, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. They do, but he does it in pretty much every one of his movies. But the one thing you can say, like, even in Heat or even in. Well, if for me and Last Mohicans, or you know, maybe a couple of other movies we might talk about later, there's chemistry. And I didn't feel any chemistry between uh, Hathaway and the sister at all.
1: Right. It feels like a lesser version of, say, like, I think the best example of that were, despite the limited means, there's still a fascination that I can buy between the two with, like, Miami Vice, between, like, Colin yeah. Farrell and Gong Lee, who I think is, yeah, yeah. yeah who are both... Like very fascinating in the movie as you we might talk about a bit later. I do agree that I don't think Maybe. the romance is necessarily that well developed. Um, but at the same time, I think uh, Tang Wei, who plays uh, Chen Lin who is the the main mm-hmm. female character in this, I think is far more developed than a lot of the other Michael Mann female protagonists in terms of like, I really love the relationship she has with her brother, where they're both people who grew up from like, they were technically brother and sister, but they grew up in very different environments and they've come back together at this point. You can tell there's that strain in the relationship. And I find that to be uh, really investing, especially when ultimately the big thing happens where the car explosion, which I think is one of, the best car explosion ever seen depicted in a movie, honestly, where it's just on, like, her next to Chris Hemsworth as the explosion happens in the background, like, the slow-mo that happens there, I think is so investing to me, and it really immediately got me invested in, like, her, like, regret over what she had just said to him about like oh this is all your fault and then the explosion happens or even like you say some of these other people are wasted I think Viola Davis is phenomenal in this movie I think she has like such a great back and forth with Hemsworth and some of these other people with like the 9-11 story that comes up so casually about her husband I think really works or even the whole like Chica thing where she's like you can call me Chica anytime after a certain point or even the bit with um the, the one guy they talk about they talk to and she, he's just like oh I don't think I'm going to participate and she's like oh well you know we could go make this go through the 9 the minute, uh, sort of cycle, and they'll pop it up, and then you'll eventually just be disgraced and everything, so why don't you actually fucking participate with this, buddy? I don't think it's necessarily the most incredibly developed character by all of these ever played, but, um, right after this is Suicide Squad. That is the ultimate waste of of Iola Davis compared to here where I think she's playing a fun supporting role in this. I think most of the cast is pretty fun. Like Hulk Mclaney I think has a lot of fun bits. Um, that one guy who's the, uh, the, um, the Russian guy from The Dark Knight, the My Dogs Are Hungry guy um, I love. Even like we don't get the main titular black hat sort of villain of this movie until the very end and it's that one guy who was like the rapist in uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and I think he has this weird bizarre energy that's so different for any kind of like villain performance and like a major release kind of like weird techno thriller movie. And even like Chris Hemsworth, I don't think it's my favorite Chris Hemsworth uh, in terms of like non, like Thor stuff. I think obviously the best Hemsworth is funny Hemsworth, like in the later Thor movies or even like in Ghostbusters, stuff like that. That's where I think he's at his peak. Um, I'll take this sort of action version of Hemsworth where he's like a weird hacker dude who got buff in prison and can fuck people up uh, any day over, like extraction where he's like a nothing man who can just kick people. Like, I find him so much more bizarre and fascinating in this than, like, most other, like, serious
0: Hemsworth roles. <laughs> I mean... I agree. Obviously, funny Hemsworth is the best Hemsworth. Um, this didn't work for me with Chris Hemsworth. I don't know if it's the whatever accent he was doing. I mean, obviously, he's covering up his his native accent.
1: He's kind of really doing, like, a Chicago, like, Michael Mann-esque accent, which is interesting.
0: Yeah, and it... Yeah, it's really bizarre. It's really, really bizarre. My thing is, why can't he just be Australian? What does it matter? Because they don't go into his past, like, you know, his childhood or anything, really. So it's like, just, yeah, I mean, he's fine in it. He's not, like, unlikable or anything like that. Just, I just found the character to be kind of boring. Like, just, just, nah, I,
1: nah, I, I- what I like is the fact that he is kind of like money because like, I think in a worse movie about like some of these hacker things you would have him be full on more like Robin Hood mode they kind of hint at that where it's just like oh no I only stole banks money and I didn't steal any people's yeah, actual yeah, yeah. money but like they would have that guy be a bit more like noble as opposed to uh, he's still like a paranoid weirdo which is what I like. Like, even, like, he he talks big game, like, even when he's interviewed about, like, hey, we can get you out of here for a bit, you could be furloughed. He's like, oh, fuck you, this is bullshit. Like, get me, like, a, a fully out of here. Like, reduce my sentence, or I'm not even gonna fucking bother. Hey, this interview's over, and <laughs> it's the guard guy then fucking gets handcuffed. He's consistently throughout this, like, t- to me, like, a, a clear Michael Mann protagonist in terms of, like, despite being, like, not super buff Hemsworth, because we've seen that in, like, Thor movies. This is more, like, a buff from, like, speaking of the Ghostbusters 2016 movie, like that, where he looks still, like like, a human, as opposed to, like, gargantuan massive. And I think what's, like, him being, like, at, at that degree, like, being this kind of, like, buff dude who was still at the same time feels like he was a dude who was hunched over and a nerd that just was on a fucking keyboard and didn't actually do anything, like, physical until he actually got into prison. I, I feel like he displays that in a way that I think, like, few other actors would even be able to display. I don't think it's, like I said, my favorite Hemsworth performance. But I think for... Getting a name actor to play a hacker who's like doesn't seem like good casting in theory. I think he does it far better than, say, if like a Chris Hem- Evans were to fucking do it.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I gotta agree with you there. Uh, but yeah, I just, I didn't, I believed him as the tough badass, but I never once believed like, oh, this guy at one point was some nerd working at MIT you know, gotten to writing code and all that. Like, it just, it didn't click for me.
1: But who does that look like to you? The MIT nerd hacker? Is it just like a dude who's just like, Ooh, gonna keep typing?
0: No, I'm, I'm not saying that I, I, at all. I just don't see that Hemsworth, Hemsworth to me didn't, he came across as the tough guy. He did, I never once believed like, oh, this guy was in MIT and he was, you know, he's some super genius. He came off as a paranoid sociopath. I, I never got the super genius can do all this stuff. Like, it just, it was unbelievable to me.
1: Well, right, I, I think the, the, the sad thing is in a modern perspective, I think paranoid weirdo sociopath is more accurate to, like, a hacker dude <laughs> than, like, super genius, like, brilliant quaffing, like, MIT scientist. I think that's the thing is this is a movie that's more about, like, oh, hey, um you can still be, like, really great at computers and stuff like that, but ultimately who you really are is, like, a slimy piece of shit. We're still trying to get out of here like I love even like by the time we get to the end of the movie it's like what should be this triumphant moment of like oh he's clear of everything and he's leaving with his love and all that uh no they're kind of just like stuck with each other at this point they're looking over their shoulders constantly it's a great Michael Mann ending of just like oh no we're we're not actually going to be safe from any of this we're totally like just screwed ourselves even after we had a badass action sequence like this Michael Mann is like the master of those kind of endings to me of just like oh yeah we had this big awesome triumphant moment and then we got to kind of sit in it like, oh, fuck. We got to, like, get on the go and leave, and nothing's over, and we're constantly in fear.
0: You know, maybe that's part of my problem with this. It, it feels very much, you know, and again, not to insult Michael Manny he is my favorite, but it just feels like it's very cookie-cutter Michael Mann. There's a lot of things in this movie that he's done in every other one of his movies, and several of them. Um, like I said, the ending... The sort of story structure, the the romance angle with the with the female lead who doesn't really have much to do, with the sort of broken man that it's everything you've seen in in set, like parts from a bunch of his different movies, all kind of thrown into one. Uh, it just doesn't. It feels like a Michael Mann imitation to me. I think that's that's probably what my problem with it is. It doesn't feel like it's Michael Mann at a hundred percent.
1: I wouldn't say maybe it is Michael Mann hundred percent either, but I still doesn't don't feel like it feels like an imitation necessarily. Cause stuff like there's that whole chase that they have, uh, where they have like the big, um, gun battle that happens when they're like going through the different parts of the little village. And then there's the one part where like, they're going down, like the guys in the SWAT suits are going down and they get like shot by all those like automatic bullets that just come out of the walls. Basically. I hadn't seen that necessarily in earlier Michael Mann movies. And even then the stuff like, I agree with you, like I said, about like the romances necessarily, uh, Adept, uh, but I still feel like that female lead has a bit more doing the average uh, Michael Mann heroine necessarily, and also just like just because a guy has like recurring motifs, I don't think that makes say like Heat any lesser than Thief, since they have like similar motifs that happen that are, like, very familiar. Like, I, I don't feel that because, like, a director has recurring factors that are, like, more, like, thematic and, like, what he likes dealing with, like, fam- familiar protagonists this doesn't necessarily make it, like, lesser to me as much as just, like, this makes it, like, a fun, maybe junkier version of it. Like, is isn't on necessarily as high a pedestal as Heat or some of his other movies. But this feels, like, sort of, like, the fun, lesser, me- like, B-level man that I would still find, like, entertaining pretty consistently. Because for any, like, even the way that he shoots... Like the hacking sequences I think are done so well with like, oh let's go inside of the fucking keyboard and show you from below <laughs> as the guy's doing. Like he makes fishing feel cinematic with that one dude. He's just like, Oh, I need to change my password, let me open this program and then you look like underneath his fucking keyboard. That's something he hasn't necessarily done before. And even like the whole thing going through the cityscapes with like the um the actual programming, I feel like isn't a bit outside of his wheelhouse.
0: Yeah, no, I mean it's just like I said, it's just I couldn't I could I couldn't connect. Man, I, I really didn't connect with this one. I really, really wanted to. It's not the worst movie I've ever seen. It's not even the worst Michael Mann movie I've ever seen. Uh, I think you're going to talk about that one at some point tonight. It, it to me, there's nothing like you. You're pointing out all these things, like, oh, that's cool and that's new, and he hasn't done that. Uh, and maybe that's the case, but I didn't get that feeling at all with it. Like, I just was like, I've seen this so many times. Not even just in Michael Mann movies, but in this genre. Nothing grabbed my attention and made me, like, sit up.
1: Right, because, like, I get it, because that's more of, like, the prevailing opinion, especially, like, at the time when this came out, was that it was just kind of, like, really dismissed and kind of treated as boring. And it's interesting, because I think also just in terms of, like, a recent cinematic history thing, it's definitely a movie that, like, obviously put Michael Mann in a bit of a director jail situation where he couldn't make many movies. But also, this, like, it's so interesting how this came out, I think the main reason it failed so much as uh, like an R-rated sort of adult-themed thriller, along with this movie being so weird, it also opened the same weekend as uh, American Sniper opening-wide.
0: Oh, Jesus. Uh, well, Yeah, and that was such a massive hit, obviously. Which I'll tell you right now, I will say, though, I prefer Black Hat to American Sniper. <laughs> so...
1: I mean look I'm I'm glad because <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit glad of that at least yeah. but it, it's just interesting where like it's a movie where like Michael Mann was sort of taken out by one of his like director contemporaries like a Clint Eastwood who is now one of the few people that like say Warner Brothers is willing to give like a small check to and it feels like this especially even with like you know the Hemsworth of it all it, it's an interesting thing where like oh that, this was an experiment in seeing like can he who came like out of nowhere to play Thor open a movie on his own and uh, this is a movie that proves no. Like, it was like this and Rush was another one where it's just like, oh, let's yeah. put the guy who played Thor. Everybody will go to it. Like, no, not really. <laughs> or even the the Ron Howard movie, like the whale movie, uh, like heart by the sea, the sea where we got super, heart of the sea where we got super skinny. Like, he was a dude who was trying to kind of have the traditional movie star thing where it's like, everyone knows me for my main role, but they'll come and see me in other things, right? No, not really. No. Like, and it, it, it feels no. like it's kind of like the end of that era as well of a new star being crowned it kind of feels like it's the beginning of the end of like new movie stars cropping up basically
0: yeah i'd say that's fucking pretty fucking accurate which is a shame because i think hemsworth has a lot of potential i I think hemsworth is very very good um it's just he chooses maybe the wrong projects still to this day i mean yeah everybody liked extraction or whatever
1: well but it, but it's part of like the netflix fodder machine where it was very popular right. for like a week because also that was like at the very beginning of the pandemic so everyone well, was like fuck we, st- fuck we need something fuck we need something still going <laughs> right and i'm sure still that'll be swallowed up with all the other like fucking netflix movies that get like quote-unquote movie stars who aren't really right. movie stars
0: to show up right yeah i'd say it's accurate
1: yeah, so Black Hat, I think, if nothing else, I think you can agree, is an interesting sort of artifact in recent movie history. <laughs> in terms of just, like, no, this will be a movie that never gets made for, like, $70 million
0: again. <laughs> no fucking way. I mean, I'd be surprised if Michael Mann gets a $70 million budget still because of this movie and how what a colossal fop it was.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, let's get to our final thoughts then uh, on this one. Adam. If you have anything to add beyond I was born I didn't get into it, please your final thoughts. Well oh,
0: I guess I guess it's not supernatural. I mean I I, uh, I pretty much follow the general consensus of, you know, what it was when it first came out. But to be honest though, if I would have seen it when it first came out, maybe I'd have time to, you know, sort of gestate and then I'd want to go back to it. I mean, and that still could happen, but just not for any time soon. I, I just It's definitely lesser manfare for me. Uh, It's, I mean, it might have its merits with some people, and and that's totally fine. Personal opinion. I just ultimately, it felt pretty hollow.
1: Yeah, and I don't necessarily think it's a, a deep movie to any extent, but I think as like sort of a junky B-tier man movie, I think it's quite fun. I think despite like you know some of the sillier trappings of it with like Hemsworth and stuff like that, I think they like everybody in this weird movie where they treat hacking. Like, it is, like, bank robbery in the way of, like, a Michael Mann. Like, I I think they treat that with enough sincerity to make it, like, me invested enough in the characters, even though I think the plot feels very convoluted with, like, who we're transferring things to and stuff like that. Even, the weird thing is, like, we haven't talked much about Michael Mann's director's cuts. You know, the, the big nuclear explosion thing originally happened in the middle of the movie. Like, when they actually go over to China to the site. Like, it happened, like, right before that scene. <laughs> so, before, like, this started off with, like, the Soy Futures shit. That was, like, the inciting incident for everything to happen after. and the studio was like, no, you gotta put that at the beginning. <laughs> so when the director's kids put back in the middle, that just shows how bizarre, like, a huge, massive thing, like an explosion at a nuclear test site happens. And it's like, oh, let's place it, like, an hour before it's supposed to happen in the movie, <laughs> and it doesn't really affect things that much. That's why this movie isn't. The most, like, interestingly plotted one, obviously, of man's work. But I still find it pretty fun. I still think, like, most performances are pretty solid. And some of the action bits are, like, pretty fun man-words. Like, maybe not top-tier man, but even bottom-tier man is better than some of the best things modern action directors can do. Honestly. Like I said, I'll watch this over an extraction any day. <laughs> With, like, oh, I had one cool, like, one-shot action sequence where Chris Hemsworth's being the shit out of somebody. Oh, Okay anything else? No, not really. Mm-hmm. This one I feel like has a bit more just weird, bizarre gonzo energy that I find not great. I wouldn't be one of those guys who's just like, oh, this is a misunderstood masterpiece. But I'd say more like, this is a misunderstood kind of fun movie. <laughs> it's one of the better sort of like fun, junky versions like a hacker movie I've seen. Well, now it's time for our weekly segment, The Double Redo. Double Redo. Double,
0: Double. Redo, double redo, double redo, double redo, double, 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 redo. 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 Redo.
1: redo. That works. It's the Double Redo, where every week Adam and I program a you know the best and worst possible double feature based on the topic uh, that we bring to the particular week. In this case, we're uh, talking about Michael Mann. So Adam and I each have two good picks to recommend to you and two bad ones we suggest you stay away from. Um, I'm starting off here with my choices. So uh, my two good ones, I have... um, One of them is the first Michael Mann movie I ever saw. And I fell in love with it, and I still think it's fights with heat for me for my favorite Michael Mann movie, but I still think it's uh, pretty phenomenal. It is collateral, which is the story of um, a taxi driver played by Jamie Foxx who gets in the middle of a horrible situation with uh, Tom Cruise, who is some kind of crazed man with a gun, who uh, is trying to get away from some seedier elements, I guess that are chasing after him. And I think this movie is a really stellar, tight little thriller that has great performances from Fox and especially Cruise. I think this is my favorite Tom Cruise performance. It's so stellar, and I think it has like a great mix. Like there's some film elements in here, but it has a lot of like the early experimentation with the digital stuff for Michael Mann. That is so stellar. I think particularly the whole sequence that occurs in like the Empty building between him and Jamie Foxx near the end of the movie is so fucking great, particularly when Tom Cruise jumps on a fucking office chair <laughs> and fucking eats shit on the fucking carpet, but then keeps moving immediately. One of my favorite just action bits in a fucking movie, and there's still a lot of like heart and emotion to it as things go along. I particularly I love the ending of this movie so much and Cruise's ultimate sort of fate there. I think it's a phenomenal little thriller that got nominated for a bunch of awards. Deserve it. Um, it's like such a stellar movie, and then. The other one I have, The Insider, which also feels a bit different for him in that uh, this is a journalism thriller that's uh, basically about um, Al Pacino plays this real producer who worked for 60 Minutes who is trying to do an investigation about um, this tobacco company. And he ends up recruiting uh, Russell Crowe, who had just gotten fired from the tobacco company to basically be like a whistleblower. Tries to get him on to do an interview and he's kind of desperate, obviously. His, he needs like money for his family, so he's willing to do it. And like on paper, that sounds like it could be really dry. But Michael Mann manages to make this such an intense brutal thriller of a movie despite mostly being people in conversations talking about news segments and cbs and bullshit like that it is so thrilling and it's one of my favorite crow performances he was nominated he won for gladiator the next year deserved it way more for this fucking movie he's so like weak in a way that still feels very human and realistic it feels very different from a lot of the roles that would make russell crowe very famous especially after this um pacino is phenomenal where he has moments where he yells but there's also so much subtlety in his performance it has one of my favorite monologues where he's talking to phil baker hall another great member of this cast um about like the oh you're not gonna run the interview now in the segment oh is it true yes is it newsworthy yes are we gonna run it no, of course we're not going to fucking run it. One of my, like, so many great dialogue scenes with, like, him. Christopher Plummer is also phenomenal. It's Mike Wallace. Uh, Bruce McGill has one scene where he plays, like, a, a fucking lawyer that's so awesome. It's, just, it's full of so many great moments. And it's a really, like, interesting movie just about journalism and how often, like, we... Have pushed actual investigative journalism to the side in favor of just, you know, papal and bullshit that'll still appease our corporate masters. It's such a phenomenal little movie that was, like, nominated for a bunch of Oscars in '99. And that's a weird Oscar season, despite how great '99 was. A bunch of other shit is nominated. Like, I feel like this and Sixth Sense are the only movies of that Oscar season worth a damn. It's, like, actually worth continuing on with. And Sixth Sense is still, like, classic and revered. The Insider kind of got lost in the shuffle. Great little fucking movie. For the bad, I have uh, one of his more recent ones, which is Public Enemies, which you mentioned earlier. I think Public Enemies has some fascinating elements to it, but I think this is a case where Michael Mann's digital cinematography doesn't work for me. It's a story about uh, John Dillinger, who was obviously like a gangster in like the 1930s and stuff like that. And the way that Mann uses the digital cinematography in this, it feels jarring, but not in like an interesting, introspective new way. It just makes it all look a bit more cheap but not immersive it just makes me feel like i'm watching like a history channel reenactment at times (laughs) despite the fact that he has like some of his great use of like gunplay and shit like that that's all over the place like in terms of the way it's set up the way it's shot it just makes it look jarring with like the period costumes and the authentic set design it just looks sort of weird not helped also by i think it's probably the last time johnny Depp was the lead of a movie and i thought he was like fine in it but He, in contrast to, like, a Christian Bale, who was, like, sort of the, the FBI agent that's going after him, is so dull... In a way that I'm just like, it might be one of his worst performances, like this. in Terminary Salvation came out the same year. A similar lack of energy and enthusiasm from him. Um, and there's some fun side people like Billy Credit plays J. Edgar Hoover with, you know, an all Mid Atlantic accent kind of thing. And Stephen Graham, who's one of my favorite character actors, pops up as Babyface Nelson. There's fun bits and pieces to it, but ultimately, I think this was like the most forgettable one. Which for some of the other bad ones that we could talk about, like the Rarely or Michael Mann movies kind of forgettable. I feel like this one definitely is. And then the other bad one is a fascinating one because um, it's the original version of his best fucking movie, L.A. Takedown. In 1989, he had originally written the script for Heat as a TV pilot. And he shot it, and it didn't end up going to series, but he ended up releasing it as a TV movie. And this is, like, a fascinating study. There are so many scenes that were, like, shot for shot, line for line, the same. And they're so fucking dull in it, take Takedown. It's just like the casting is like really bizarre. The guys they got to supplement, um, you know, Al Pacino and particularly Robert De Niro. The guy who they got for like that character is like so dull and uninteresting. Watch this and Heat next to each other, and you'll be baffled at how you can take the same great material and just make it so poorly. It feels like even subpar Miami Vice, like 1980s era. It's so bizarre and so disappointing, but it's an interesting sort of like, it's the original storyboards basically for a much better movie to follow.
0: <laughs> okay, well, I have seen all of your movies. Um, Collateral, completely agree. Love it. I just rewatched it actually last night. Yeah, Collateral still great. And I agree, it's my favorite uh, Tom Cruise as well. I think Tom Cruise's Vincent is just, it's stellar, stellar work. He could be so charming and yet just terrifying at the same time wonderful performance and i always forget how good jamie fox is in it too uh it's just that he's against just a powerhouse of uh, tom cruise in this and but yeah it's shot great love the score uh, and the soundtrack it's just fucking great you know early audio slave and, and so it's just it's absolutely fantastic yeah and the insider one of those great movies that nobody talks about and very few people you know i have actually seen but yeah it's you know it's, it's pacino just fucking turning in just one of his better performances of his later at least of the 90s uh he's he's really fucking solid and russell Crowe is great i completely agree he should have got it for this over gladiator uh the following year i mean i'm glad he got one but yeah if he if he was going to get it for anything it should have been this LA takedown. Yeah, I mean, I agree. It, it's it's dull. It's it's just such a weird thing. Especially if you are a fan of Heat or if you were to do that double feature, you would be perplexed. You'd be like, "How the fuck did this really <laughs> shitty thing I'm watching turn into this masterpiece?" Uh it, it's it's very very fascinating. Um, and just quickly, uh, public enemies is my least favorite Michael Mann movie. It is super dull. Um, I tried to watch it twice over the last week and I could not get more than 35 minutes into it. It's, it's looks like you said, looks terrible. It's really dark, really cheap. Uh, I don't think, I think Billy Crudup might be the only one in the movie really giving a fuck. Uh, everybody else is just kind of there. For the most part, uh, Stephen Graham's actually really fun, as being Nelson. He is fun. And I do like the shootout scenes and stuff, but other than that, it's just eh, it's so fucking boring and bland, and Christian Bale is purvis. It's just, why, what, what? Could he give less of a fuck? Like, honestly, it's such a dry, dull performance. And I, I mean, granted, that's probably what he was told to do, but it, it's just Woof, woof. Now, onto to mine. Uh, for my good, you know, we've talked about it already on the show. We've mentioned it several times in this episode, but I can't stress enough how much I love this movie and how I think it is the greatest potential movie ever made. Uh, it's definitely my favorite crime heist movie ever made. Uh, I have Heat. Uh, you know it, it, everybody's talked about it everybody's seen it you've seen it emulated in everything from Grand Theft Auto uh, to The Dark Knight to I mean it's it's everywhere it's super super influential it's absolutely fantastic it's full of powerhouse performances cinematography the, the action shootout scenes are in my opinion the best he's done um, it, it's just it's just uh, a spellbinding movie it, everything about it works Uh, Then I have the other movie you mentioned earlier, which was very divisive and sort of turned a lot of people off, but I have Miami Vice. Uh, I think Miami Vice is one of those where people have not seen it just because they got the wrong opinion of it. They think it's going to be a remake of the 80s, sort of early 90s schlocky sitcom, and it is not at all. It is a dark, dark dark movie another one with just amazing sort of action set pieces the final shootout alone is just fucking incredible it's it's a super super fun movie in the weirdest way like it shouldn't be fun just really solid solid michael mann movie uh and then for my bad to be very brief uh so i don't have much to say about either but the keep it was one of your choices alternate choices last week It is a weird fucking movie um, populated by just, I mean, Ian McKellen, which is strange. The Lost Tangerine Dream soundtrack is really fucking kind of phenomenal, but there's just nothing else about it that works in the ultimate creature just looks like a professional wrestler covered in blue paint. It's just, it's a really weird, strange disjointed movie and then i have manhunter never been a fan of manhunter i know a lot of people love it and that's fine i just i don't like william peterson never have i don't like tom noonan very much i like brian cox i like brian cox's version of Lecter. um it's obviously not the defined defined version um but i I think he's fine uh it looks good it's shot well, I mean, it's Michael Mann, it's just, I, I just never could get into Manhunter, and I, I've tried several times, and every time I just walk away feeling sort of like, okay, that exists.
1: Well, yeah, I've seen all of these. Um, one of your bad choices, one of your good choices is an interesting look at like how to troubled productions can really produce different movies from the same director. Because The Keep was like an infamous example where like several things with like the actual thing, the effects guy died while they were making the movie. So they had to shoot around not having the special effects. Yeah, uh, Scott Glenn's character who has the weird powers and shit, um, apparently a lot of stuff was cut out of what Michael Mann originally wanted. Like this cut originally was apparently like three hours long or so. And they demanded it like it cut down severely to like the, I believe it's 96 minutes long. <laughs> so they cut a lot and forced him to cut out a lot of shit and most of that footage is lost apparently so what we've even seen what we can see because it like weirdly comes in and out of like being released is like a weird version of that movie that isn't approved by the director he's disowned it totally it's a bizarre creature that I'm surprised exists and Miami Vice also had a very similar weird production where like they were shooting in Miami during hurricane season at points Jamie Foxx wanted to do the movie and then during pre-production he got an Oscar so then he got too high for his britches and apparently just walked off the set And Colin Farrell has said many times that this was the movie where he doesn't remember making it because he was so drunk and such an alcoholic. Like, literally, the movie wrapped, and he went to rehab the next day. (laughs) So that's how just, like, that is so much surmounting shit to work with. And then that movie ends up being uh, really fucking great. I completely agree. Like, maybe it's my lack of huge familiarity with the TV show beyond, like, the general aesthetics of it because that's why I kind of didn't see it at the first either, because I'm like, I don't know, it seems like it'd be kind of silly. Michael Mann takes that and just makes this really dark, interesting crime thriller that you're totally immersed in. Like, Colin Farrell is phenomenal, despite being, I guess, drunk the whole time. And there are so many great shootout sequences and, like, chases. I love, I watched the director's cut earlier today, Mm -hmm. and the director's cut starts off with a boat chase scene that feels like it would be traditional Miami Vice boat scene. With, like, oh, they're, like, in the bright, colorful outfits, and they're chasing each other around, and it's, like, this big, fun thing set to 80s music, and I love the statement of purpose that that's, like, a fun chasing that happens at the beginning, and then Michael Mann's like, all right, now here's my fucking movie, and then it starts off with, like, the fucking club scene with the Linkin Park drop, which, a lot of weird, bizarre soundtrack choices, like, even In the Air Tonight, that weird cover... (laughs) That he puts that in the director's cut right before the big climactic shootout, like while they're driving over, basically, <laughs> instead of at the end credits. It's a weird, bizarre change that still kind of works for it at the same time. It's a stellar movie. Completely agree with that that's great. Um, and then uh, your other good one of Heat, we've talked about, obviously. Um, maybe not in one of our better episodes, uh, because for some reason, uh, I think you were like next to a fish tank or something. <laughs> so there's a lot of weird, bad audio stuff with that episode.
0: <laughs> I was in a submarine.
1: <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> You're recording live from James Cameron's <laughs> Um But yeah, I, still, I didn't watch the movie until that episode, and I still like think that's a stellar movie, um, for sure. And then um, I completely disagree on Manhunter. I think Manhunter is pretty fucking great. I, I love Tom Noonan. I'm not like, I, I guess I haven't watched that so much William Pearson, but I think he's pretty solid in it. I, I'll say I was more familiar with Red Dragon initially, I had seen that version. And then going to Manhunter, I realized like, oh, all the good things about uh, Red Dragon, he ripped off clearly from Michael Mann and Manhunter. And it's a much lesser movie than Manhunter. I mean, the best adaptation of like that whole thing with like the Dollar hide killer and all that other stuff is still the third season of Hannibal with Richard Armitage. He's so fucking great. He's like the ultimate version of that character. But I still like Tom Noon's performance quite a bit as that character. And I think it's probably the second best of those Hannibal movies, which isn't saying a lot. When your competition is Red Dragon and Hannibal Rising and Hannibal, <laughs> those are severely, <laughs> really bad,
0: terrible movies. I mean, yeah, I, I gotta agree with you. The the third season of Hannibal, Richard Armitage, and yeah, I guess by default it is the second <laughs> best of the the, the Lecter movies. Uh, but again, that is not saying shit.
1: No, no. Uh, but let's go ahead and uh, repeat our titles. For anybody out there, um, I'll start off with mine. Uh, My two good picks were The Insider and Collateral. And then my two bad picks were LA Takedown and Public Enemies.
0: And my two good picks were Heat and Miami Vice am i too bad we're the keep and manhunter
1: yes and uh submit your own double redo choices to us uh, at some of the socials and email that we'll mention here near the end of the episode but first we want to thank some people before we get to our picking for next week which will be very exciting uh we have uh first to thank chris oliver for the intro and outro music using our show Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Thorlally for our artwork. Follow him at Night of Water, night with a K, underscore of, underscore water, for more of his a great artwork. We also want to thank, of course, our Patreon supporters, patreon.com DEDV pod, where for $1 a month you all get uh, bonus podcast episodes uh, that we. Ex- Only have for the patrons out there. And also, uh, you get to vote in polls uh, to pick movies and topics we cover. And this week, this episode's going out, you'll be able to vote on the good choice for a pretty big episode we have coming up, our fourth anniversary episode. That'll be uh, next month, where um, you all get to vote for the good cinematic superhero film we'll be covering that's the topic, Mo- so superheroes that originated in movie form and I think I have two heavy hitters as my two choices here that I'll be curious to see who shakes out my choices are the Pixar film The Incredibles versus Paul Verhoeven's Robocop <coughs>
0: Robocop <coughs> Robocop,
1: <coughs> right, I mean we know where Adam is swayed Um at the same time, I think Adam, this feels like the most where I'm like I'm not sure where this will go
0: Yeah, yeah, and I'm on board for both. Like,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Robocop. Yes. But you all get the ultimate choice. It's not up to or Me. It's up to you out there. You'll vote in the poll. That'll go up the day after this episode pops up, so you all get to choose which one of those two good ones we cover for that episode coming up in May. And uh, we also want to encourage you, if you like uh, our babble and stuff and want to see more of it uh follow us on twitter and facebook at dedb pod uh and also you can email us stuff like redo choices at double bill at gmail.com i'll it out and if you want more of my uh other antics you can find me on uh twitter instagram and letterboxd is at not the who's tommy and i also do some writing at both mariannithomas.wordpress.com and film-cred.com
0: and i'm on twitter and Instagram at Atom or Adam, that's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M and you can also find me on good old Letterboxd at Schwanson, that's S-C-H-W-A-N D-T-S-O-N
1: And to hear more of us please uh, follow us on places like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms wherever you get podcasts out there. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network, or uh, dig into our archives from before we joined... Talk Film Society, over on our Podbean main feed, which should be linked in the description below. And everything else, if you can't you know, support us on the Patreon for the $1, the completely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around to get us more visibility.
0: Yeah! And i know it's a lot of people doing it, and uh, it's really really cool, y'all, and we definitely appreciate it, even f- from you, Christian Alvarez, go fuck yourself, but thanks for doing it. Yes,
1: thank you all. Now, Adam, time we our picking for next week's episode, which, interestingly, we only have to do half of based on some of the Patreon stuff we mentioned earlier. But basically, if you're new, every week, usually, uh, Adam and I have uh, two choices of either good or bad quality. We switch off on who gets the good or bad quality for certain episodes. We assign those each a number between 1 and 10. And the other person picks number two, one and ten, usually, and that gets us our good and our bad feature. Uh, Though, some caveats to keep in mind. One, the bad choice has already been chosen for us by our patrons for the upcoming episode. So, uh, you'll only be doing the good picking, in this case, of my choices on that. But also, Mm -hmm. there's the godfather rule. That's still in effect, where, uh, basically, uh, Adam and I were given a veto last May, Uh, that expires upon the next anniversary, so coming up next month, uh, where we can only use it once and uh, if we hear one person say a specific choice and we feel we don't want to have that particular choice, we say, actually, I'll take the canola. So that gets us our one opportunity to veto a particular choice and go with whatever the other choices that the other person would reveal. Um, Adam has already used his, and I still have mine burning that hole, and I've only got a couple weeks to use it. I will not be able to veto the uh, bad choice for the next episode, since the patrons chose it. That's exempt from any kind of veto. We are doing prequels next week um, in honor of the third Fantastic Beasts movie. I use honor with so much air quotes
0: uh, yeah, for a lot of various yeah, yeah. reasons related to the I air I could see them. Yes. We're on yeah, Zoom, and we're not even on video.
1: But that's true, I could yes. see you air quoting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, but prequels, is, it's an interesting topic. We, you, there are plenty of good and bad choices for that. And Adam, you had sure, sure. a couple bad choices the patrons picked between. Mm-hmm. It was between The King's Man, which is... Um, a prequel to the Kingsman franchise.
0: Which I have watched. I have watched the Kingsman. And uh, I gotta be honest, I'm glad it wasn't chosen.
1: Okay. Well, uh, then you're. are you so glad that we got the ultimate choice, which was Carlito's Way, Rise to
0: Power? <laughs> Look, <laughs> there's gonna be a lot more to talk about. Let's put it that way. And plus, this gives, I'm excited that this gives you the reason to watch Carlito's Way.
1: That's true, I have not seen the original, so it'll be a fun time at least watching that. It gives me an excuse to get that off the old watch list.
0: Yeah, for sure. I would watch the original first. <laughs> Don't watch them in, in sort of story order.
1: No, I have to, like, the way that it was
0: originally intended to be. Right, Jay Hernandez turns into Al Pacino.
1: Right, look, it's like the Star Wars prequels. We have to go in the chronological yeah. order as a, <laughs> clearly the artist intent. Right, exactly. Because I'm a, I assume Brian De Palma was also involved in this direct-to-video sequel, right? <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah, 100%.
1: <laughs> but, Adam, now you have uh, to choose between my two good picks for prequels. So please yes. pick number between 1 and
0: 10. Oh, boy. Uh, I'll go number. Fuck it, number 1.
1: Okay. And number 3. I have a movie from someone we've devoted an episode to, but we haven't talked about him in a while. And I think it's interesting because it's a prequel to a television series, but I think a very underrated one, especially because it was decried at the time. I have David Lynch's Twin Peaks firewalk with me.
0: Oh, boy. Was not expecting that. I'm okay with that. Yeah, curveballs, baby. (laughs) Yeah. What was your other one?
1: Well, over at number... Eight. I have one that, I guess it's a spoiler to say this is a prequel because it's kind of a twist of the end of the movie, but I, Ooh, I still think the movie... A twist. Yes, uh, I think it works as a fun version of that. Um, I have the most recent, and I'd say best entry in this horror franchise, Final Destination 5.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, dude, it, maybe it's a spoiler, but if you don't know by now, then come on. That's true, it's over 10 years old at this point. <laughs> yeah, come on.
1: <laughs> but still, for the record, that is one of my favorite fucking twists at the end of that movie oh yeah it's like, oh, so good perfect so, so smart
0: <laughs> yes Yep. Yeah, i agree uh, but,
1: but now uh, i guess it's time uh we segue out of here the best way we can as two michael Mann protagonists who walk off into the distance but wonder was it all worth it no i'll answer no problem pro- probably not for sure yeah <laughs> not worth it not worth it